you're doing so, please take your Bible and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I saw one pastor theologian say one time, uh, these aren't the only two ways to know if a church is healthy, but if you want to know, if you want an indicator as to whether a church is healthy, go in their worship service and listen for two things, men singing and babies crying. Good indicators for the health of a church. So thank you, Lord, for all those noisy little children. Uh, as Pastor Mike mentioned uh, this morning, uh, through, through our call to worship, through our historical reading, um, through a lot of the lyrics of the hymns and songs we've been singing, our focus is on the preaching of the word. Starting today, Pastor Kevin and I will begin a, an eight-week series on the church uh, the, the characteristics of the church, um, the, the thi- who we are and what we do uh, that make us unique in the world, the things that Jesus has commanded us to do, uh, and just to take the, these two summer months to reflect on um, what a godly church, what a biblical church, a faithful church looks like. And then in the month of Al- uh, August, our uh, bivocational and lay elders will be preaching to us. You won't want to miss that uh, starting with the first Sunday in August all the way through Labor Day weekend, and that'll, that'll take us through the rest of the summer. But we begin this morning looking at this topical series on the church, and the first place, the first topic is the preaching of the Word of God. This must be the starting place. Uh, the pulpit is the very heart of the church. Everything else flows from that, and so we begin this series on the church with the topic, the preaching of the Word of God. And the Word of the Lord this morning will come from 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. The Holy Spirit says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask now through the preaching of your word that you would indeed speak, O Lord, until your church is built and the earth is filled with your glory. We ask this, our Father, in the name of your Son, the incarnate Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning, I have to break a rule. And it's a rule that was given to me in probably every preaching class that I ever took in Bible college and seminary. My homiletics professors told me often, never use yourself 
as a positive example in a sermon. Never make yourself the hero of a story. Now, I certainly do not intend to try to make myself a hero this morning, but I do want to introduce the topic of preaching, kind of like how Paul does in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul gives his resume. So I kind of want to introduce the topic of preaching this morning by giving you a little bit of my resume when it comes to preaching specifically. I took multiple preaching classes, both in my undergrad and my master's uh, degrees. My doctorate is in expository preaching. Uh, I wrote my dissertation about Christ-centered preaching. And so all that to say, I have read, thought about, and listened to a lot of preaching, right? I've had no choice. In order to finish uh, these programs, I've had to. Now, to be fair, I haven't been preaching for over 30 years like Pastor Kevin has, but I have been preaching vocationally for over 13 years, which as a 35-year-old is over a third of my life. Again, I do not recite this resume to sound impressive at all, but hopefully just to convey to you, even in the slightest way, that I don't take the topic of preaching lightly, right? I'm I, I, I try to take it very seriously. I've spent a lot of time and a lot of money thinking about preaching. My academic and vocational life, both as a pastor and as a student, were given to preaching, right? Given to theology in general, but specifically to preaching. So I can talk, I, I, I want to talk about preaching in a way that, for example, Pastor Brett would talk about ethics or a theology of death, things that he's focused on, I wouldn't be able to speak the way he would about those things. But if there's one thing that I should be able to speak about, it should be preaching by the very nature of the money and the time spent. As a pastor, I, my, my deepest uh, passion, I would say, is for uh, preaching. So this morning, again, we begin this eight-week series on the church uh, before our, our other elders, pastors, are going to preach in August. This is what we're going to do for July, for June and July, is we're going to spend uh, these two months, these eight weeks, thinking about characteristics that are essential for the church. Like If we boil this down to the non-negotiables, what does it mean to be a church? What are the things that are essential for Christ Community Church to function, to be faithful? These eight things, we believe, are, are a good starting point. Of course, this Series will not be exhaustive. It, it never can be, right? We will not cover every issue of doctrine, theology, or ethics that are essential for the church in general, for Christ Community Church specifically, but we do want to cover eight topics, that eight elements that characterize faithful Christianity, faithful churches. And again, we began the series this morning with the preaching of the Word of God. Why the preaching of the Word of God is essential. Why is Scripture essential? Why is it important that the Bible is at the center of our lives? Why is it imperative that we come to church every week and listen to sermons from the Bible? Now, maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're like, I don't think it is. I think you could go to church or not go to church and it doesn't really matter. Maybe you're 
here, but and you're thinking, I, I think it's helpful, but, you know, you could take it, you could leave it. Maybe you're here because you know it's important, but you don't really know why. You know, ever since you, you grew up in a Christian home or ever since you got saved, you just, that's what, what you've done. Is you've gone to church and listened to sermons. Why is this so important? Right? Why in a, in a service that's an hour and a half, hour and 15 to an hour and a half, why is like half of it or more given to one thing? Right? Why do we put the pulpit in the center here and not like off to the side and just have the Eucharist in the center like the Roman Catholic Church does? Like, what are we saying by these things? What do we mean by these things? Why is this so important? This is the, these are the questions we're asking as we think about the preaching of the Word of God. So I want to give you three reasons. Again, this is not exhaustive. Uh, it never can be. The Word of God is infinite in its depth because God is infinite in His depth. Uh, but three reasons why the preaching of the Word of God is essential. Number one, the preaching of the Word of God is essential because God has spoken. The preaching of the word of God is essential because God has spoken. The one true and living God, one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, is a God who speaks. Scripture tells us, uh, we saw this last week, Trinity Sunday, Pastor Kevin read from Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis 1.1, Scripture says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 3 goes on to say, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. Each subsequent day of creation then is inaugurated, it's started with the voice of God, and God said. Genesis 1 reveals to us that God spoke all of creation into existence. God in his infinite power and perfection could have created in any way that he wanted to. And he chose to speak. And God said. Not only did God create via his word, but God has also then spoken his law to us. In Genesis 1 and 2, God commanded Adam to be fruitful and multiply, Genesis 1.28. He also gave Adam the command to abstain from eating from the tree, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 2.17. God spoke to Noah when he instructed him to build the ark, Genesis 6.13 through 7.4. When God called Abraham out of idolatry and into monotheism, right? Covenant relationship with God. How did he do so? He spoke to him. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And when Yahweh redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai, he wrote, God wrote the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone himself. Exodus 31, verse 18. So these Ten Commandments, written on two tablets of stone by the very finger of God, is the first ever 
written scripture. That's the first Bible, written by the finger of God himself. And from that point on in redemptive history, the Bible starts to take shape. God's word begins to be canonized, written down, and used in liturgy and worship. Moses wrote the Torah, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, as redemptive history progresses forward, then Yahweh speaks through the Old Testament prophets and they write down what God says. That's how their, the, their Old Testament, the, for them it was just the Bible, right? it was just the word of God. But that scripture uh, was, was considered written by the prophets. Moses is the first prophet. And then Joshua is considered a former prophet. Uh, judges. Uh, Samuel, the prophet, the kings, all of these, these are the former prophets, and then we have the latter prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you know, Ezekiel, the book of the twelve, all these prophets. So God speaks to the prophet, it's written down, it, it's, the, the Bible starts growing, right? It's, it's taking shape. Of course, when we come to the New Testament, Jesus, the incarnate word of God, commissions his apostles and they preach and they write these letters and the, they write these gospels and it all comes together under the direction of the Holy Spirit to the point where we have the canon, we have the Bible, we have the perfect and complete word of God. Everything God wants to tell us about himself and about salvation in Jesus alone, we have here. We are missing nothing. How do we know that? Because it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Right? 2 Timothy 3.16, we read it this morning, tells us that all Scripture is breathed out by God. The phrase breathed out by God, that's the Greek word theopneustos. It's a compound adjective made up of two words. One, theos, God, and secondly, penuma, spirit. So literally, quite literally, 2 Timothy 3.16 can be translated, all Scripture is God-spirited. It's breathed out by God. It's the, the Spirit of God is the one who's doing the work here. It conveys the idea that the Holy Spirit inspired everything written from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. That's every verse in the Bible. Inspired by the Holy Spirit. Supervised by the Holy Spirit. St. Peter wrote it this way in 2 Peter 1.21. He said, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Paul says scripture is God-breathed. Peter says the Holy Spirit is carrying these men. So there's this dynamic work that's going on where these men are writing, but the Holy Spirit is sovereignly supervising. The Holy Spirit is using the experiences, the minds, the research, the memory, the teaching of all of these men from, from Moses to John to give us the perfect, inspired, authoritative word of God. That's what we have. That's what the Bible is. Because that's true, Christians believe in what we might call a revelatory epistemology. Those are two $5 words, maybe $10 words. What does it mean? Revelatory means revealed. 
Epistemology means, it means like a theory of knowledge. How do we know stuff? Go ask Brett about it. He'll talk to you about it for a long time. It means that we understand that we only know anything because God's revealed it to us. That's what it means. Our theory of knowledge is grounded in the revelation of God. Of course, that's not, that's not true for the world, right? Whether it's uh, naturalistic atheism and, and their theory of knowledge about how humans have collected and gathered or, or other world religions, um, you know, like, like, like Islam or, or Judaism or Buddhism or anything else, right? Any worldview is going to have a different theory of knowledge. And as, as convictional, orthodox, reformed, Protestant Christians, this is our theory of knowledge. We only know anything, and especially we only know anything about God and salvation in Jesus, only because God told us. We would not have figured this out. God has spoken to us. Everything we know about God and everything we know about God's law is because God has spoken to us. Our theory of knowledge is grounded in God's self-revelation. What's more is Protestants have always believed in the Reformation principle of sola scriptura. Sola scriptura is the doctrine that scripture is the primary authority in the life of the church. It's the ultimate authority. It's the norm that norms all other norms, right? It's the foundation. Everything is checked against the Bible. The Bible is where the buck stops. That doesn't mean that other documents like creeds, confessions, catechisms carry no authority in the church. See, some people rightly view sola scriptura to mean that we have no creed but the Bible, that's a bad way to do theology. That's where heresy comes from. Creeds, catechisms, uh, confessions, these are important guardrails that God has providentially given us as, as the church has reflected on his word. The ultimate authority is in the word, but that doesn't mean there is no authority anywhere else. These creeds, confessions, and, and catechisms are authoritative insofar as they reflect the scripture. They are like the moon. They do not produce any light in and of themselves, but like the moon reflects the light of the sun, so orthodox creeds, confessions, and catechisms reflect the truth of Scripture. So sola scriptura, the final authority in the church. It's also important, again, that we make note, as we have already, that the Bible reveals to us that this God, this God who speaks, is the Holy Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son is called the Word of the Father. John 1, 1 and 2. We noted earlier from 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.21 that the Holy Spirit inspired the Word of God. So the Word of God is Trinitarian, right? As God speaks to us, it is the three in one who speak. They all work to give us the perfect Word of God. So if all this is true, if there is one true and living God, and this one true and living God has spoken, 
and he has revealed himself in his, and his law in Scripture, if all that's true, the only conclusion is that the preaching of the Bible is essential. The preaching of the Word of God is essential. Now, if you don't believe any of that, if you don't believe in the one true living God, if you don't believe that he has spoken and that it, is, it has been canonized through the work of the Holy Spirit in the Scripture, if you don't believe that, then you don't need the Bible. You're right. Like, if I'm wrong, you're right. You don't need the church if this isn't the word of the one true and living God. If the Bible isn't the very word of the sovereign God, then why are you even listening to this sermon? Like, I promise you, I'm not that smart and I'm not that interesting to take up this much of your time if this is not God's holy and inspired word, right? I mean, and neither is Pastor Kevin, right? And, and neither, and I like Pastor Kevin a lot, right? I hear him talk like five days a week, right? But I mean, what are we doing if this isn't the word of God? None of those guys are that interesting. All the guys you're going to hear in August, none of them are interesting enough. You could do something more fun right now than what you're doing, right? You could sleep in. You could golf. You can go to brunch. Like, why is this worth your time if this is not the word of God? But if there is one true and living God and he has spoken and this book is what he has said... then there is nothing more important that you could be doing, right? There's no point otherwise, right? What would be the point? So we could, so we could create moralistic people because it's the tradition that you were raised in? Why do people go to church if they don't believe the Bible is the word of God? I don't know. There's different reasons, but ultimately they're all wasting their time. Seriously, if the Bible isn't the living and active word of God, Hebrews 4.12, then you really should do whatever you want. Don't waste your time reading the Bible. Don't waste your time going to church. But if the Bible is the word of the one true and living God, then nothing matters more. If the scripture is the very revelation of the creator of the universe, then it is most certainly a matter of life and death, whether or not you come to church and submit yourself to the preaching of the Bible. It is a matter of life and death, whether or not you feast on the word and the sacrament in a weekly way. The word is essential because God has spoken. We are his creatures and we must listen to him. As Francis Schaeffer said, God is there and he is not silent. That's the first reason. The second reason, the preaching of the word of God is essential because the word of God contains the gospel. We noted earlier that Yahweh commanded Adam not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know Adam did eat and death spread to all men because all sinned, Romans 5.12. Adam's sin cursed the creation. 
but by his grace, God spoke to us the promise in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. This is what we call the gospel, the first gospel. The gospel is the announcement of the reversal of the curse. And the scripture, the Bible, is the story of how God's reversing the curse. The Bible is the story of God's redemption of his people. The Bible is not your roadmap to life. The Bible is not a list of rules. The Bible is not a series of inspirational quotes. The Bible is not a book of children's stories. The Bible is the story of how God is saving his people from their sin. Matthew 1, 21. And 2 Timothy 3.15, we read earlier, says of this Bible, of the sacred writings, that they are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Every book, every chapter, every verse in Scripture is telling the story of the good news of Jesus. This is nowhere more clearly revealed than it is in Luke chapter 24. After his resurrection, listen to what Jesus said to his disciples, Luke 24, 44 through 47. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day raise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So two things to note here. In, first, after Jesus raises from the dead, he, these are the things he wants to convey to him. Once again, he explains the gospel. That's what Jesus just did. He explained the gospel, that the Christ would suffer, die, rise again, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all nations. That's the good news. The good news that the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity would be uh, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, and that he would live a truly human life yet without sin, Hebrews 4.15. That he would suffer on the cross bearing the wrath of God for the sins of his people, and that he would die. And that on the third day he would rise from the dead, and now everyone who will repent of their sins and trust in Jesus alone will experience the forgiveness of their sins and the hope of eternal life. To repent means to confess that you are a sinner, as we did earlier. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself. It means to confess your sin, to agree with God that you're a sinner, and then to turn away from that sin. And to believe in Christ means to know that God is holy, that you are sinful, and that the only answer to the problem of God's holiness in your sin is Jesus who Jesus is and what Jesus did. That knowledge alone is not enough, but that knowledge is the starting point. You must also assent to that knowledge of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. You must actually believe the story of Jesus. You can't think it's a fairy tale. You can't think it's just a religious text. You've, you've got to think this is reality. God is really the creator. He's really holy. I'm really a sinner. Jesus really died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. You've got to think that's real. If you don't know that's real, you're not a Christian. You don't have faith. But even the knowledge and the assent fall short of what is required fully in faith. 
you must finally transfer your trust to Jesus alone. So, so faith has an intellectual component, but it also has you know, an, an emotional component, right? It's the head and the heart. that You have to know, assent, and trust. You must place the full weight of your trust on the reality that the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That's it. That's the only way you can receive the forgiveness of your sins and the hope of eternal life. That is the gospel. Nothing else is the gospel. That's the only gospel. And if you come here regularly or if you're new and you come back next week and the week after that, we're going to say that same thing every single time because it's the only gospel. You know, it's like a recipe, right? That, that's just the best thing you've ever tasted. And it's like you have the same ingredients every time, right? This, this is the way, as, as they say, as the Mandalorian says. This is the way. We got nothing else. This is the gospel. So that's the first thing is Jesus, you know, tells the story of the gospel again. The second thing Jesus tells us in Luke 24 is that this gospel was written about in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Okay, that trifold, ooh, that trifold descriptor there is another way of saying the Old Testament. Jesus had the same Old Testament that we did, all the same books, all the same verses, but they were in a different order. They had it in an order, they called it the, the Tanakh, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings, or the Psalms. And so when Jesus says this, he's saying the Old Testament preaches the gospel. Um, we know that the New Testament is all about the gospel, right? Like, no one's really debating that. But Jesus is also telling us here that, like, the Old Testament is about the gospel, too. Every verse in the Bible is about the gospel. Every story, every person, every religious ritual, every law, every type, every shadow in the Old Testament is preaching to us the good news of Jesus Christ. And so, church, listen, right? I'm not just, like, randomly giving you thoughts up here. This is why the preaching of the Word of God is essential, Right, number one, because God has spoken, but number two, it's essential because it's the only place you can find the gospel. Like the only way you can be saved is found in this book. It's the only place. The Bible reveals to us that there is one true creator, God, who created everything and that he is holy and that he will not tolerate sin. God will not tolerate sin. Preacher, how do you know that? Because like the Bible says it, right? That's the only way we know anything about God. The Bible tells us that this God created us in his image and he warned us that if we sinned against him that we would face the curse of death. The Bible tells us that the very first image bearer, Adam, did sin and that all of creation was cursed with him. You know, everybody looks around at all of the, the brokenness of the world and says, how can we explain it? The Bible explains it. Well, that's oversimplified. No, that's reality. That's what happened. It's the only thing that makes sense because it's true. The Bible is the only place that tells us the story of redemption through the floods and the fires, through the rise and fall of nations from the manger to the cross. Not only does the Bible tell us about our past, but it also tells us about our future. The Bible is comprehensive. The Bible tells us that Jesus, who is right now ruling at the right hand of God the Father, will return someday to raise the dead and judge the world and make all things new. And Paul, here in 2 Timothy, grounds the preaching of the word as one of the reasons, the second coming of Jesus is one of the reasons why we must preach the word, why it's essential. 
Look at 2 Timothy 4, verse 1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Then we'll get to verse 2 in a second. But the reason the command is given in verse 2 is because Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. The Bible warns us that those who do not repent and believe will stand in judgment before Christ and that they will spend forever in eternal conscious punishment in hell. If you are not trusting in Jesus right now, that's true of you. Please hear what the Bible is saying. Please try to unbias your mind for a moment from whatever you think about me or Kevin or anyone else here. Jesus is going to come back and judge every one of your thoughts, every one of your words, and every one of your actions. I only know that because God told us in the Bible. You will stand before him. And if all you've got to offer for all of your thoughts and all of your words and all of your deeds is your own righteousness, then you are going to spend eternity in hell. You must take Christ by faith. And if you do, your sins will be forgiven and you will receive eternal life. Why? Because Jesus was righteous for you if you believe. And Jesus died to pay the penalty for you if you believe. And Jesus was raised on the third day as the firstborn of the new creation, God's validation of everything he ever said and ever did for you if you believe. Please do not walk out of here if, if you don't believe without seriously considering the fact that you are going to die and you are going to stand before Jesus and you've got one of two answers. That's true of every human who's ever lived. Believe the gospel. If you do believe, the Bible gives you comfort that you will live forever in the new creation where you will never sin and you will never desire sin. The Bible is essential because humanity has a universal need. You know, we celebrate diversity so much in our culture today. And there's, there's a beauty in, in diversity. But every single person who's ever lived has a universal need. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. So regardless of ethnicity, age, gender, socioeconomic status, political affiliation, regardless of where they've lived in history or when they've lived in history, every single human being who's ever lived has the need of the forgiveness of sins and restoration with their creator. The good news is that Jesus has come to accomplish that, but we only know that good news because God told us in the scripture. And so we must preach the word of God. So that's two. There's one more. So we, we preach the Bible. It's essential because God has spoken. It's essential because it contains the gospel. Finally, the, word of, the preaching of the word of God is essential because it equips us for good works. The preaching of the word of God equips us for good works. Francis Schaeffer asks, if God is there and if God is not silent, 
how shall we now live? Right? That's the logical question. If there is a God who has spoken, how do we live in light of that? Another way to ask that question is, we know how we're justified, how we're made right before God, the gospel, everything we just explained. We know that we're waiting for the hope of glorification, right? To be raised from the dead and to never sin again. But what about now? What about sanctification? What about our time in this life between when God saves us and when God raises us from the dead? So whether you call it Christian ethics, good works, obeying God's law, it's all referring to the same thing. How should God's people live? And the preaching of the word of God is essential because it tells us how we should live. Everything pertaining to life and godliness has been revealed for us. Back to our text, 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we may be equipped for good works. When Paul originally wrote this text, that phrase, man of God, wasn't, it wasn't necessarily referring to everyone. If you have an ESV, there might be a footnote about that. He's referring specifically to Timothy and to the other elders that would be preaching the word, that they would be equipped for these good works. Uh, about a year and a half ago, my sister got married in Tennessee, and um, we're at the wedding, and Pastor Brett's part of the liturgy. He's reading some scripture, and the guy who's officiating the wedding, like he refers to Brett as man of God. I don't know if it's because he didn't know his name or, you know, just because he's like a fellow pastor and it was like a thing, uh, but that's how we referred to him the whole time, without fail. So from now on, when you address Pastor Brett, obviously, man of God. Paul's doing the same thing here, though. He's talking specifically about pastors. He's talking about elders. Of course, there is implication for all people, right? I know all of you who memorized this verse as a kid, you're like, wait a minute, this, I was the man of God when I did this in, you know, Wednesday night church. Paul's talking specifically about pastors. There is implication for everybody. But pastors, this, this is where it's not just like why you need your Bible. This is why you need the preaching of the word, right? So that the man of God is equipped to teach you and correct you and train you in righteousness. The pastors must be equipped so that the people can, in turn, be equipped for every good work. That's why after revealing to us that the Scripture contains the knowledge of salvation that's breathed out by God to equip us for good works, Paul then gives the command in chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. It's right here on this pulpit. Preach the word. 2 Timothy 4, 2. That's, that's the command. That's the imperative. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The verb preach is the Greek keruxon. It's an aorist active imperative. It's an imperative. That means it's a command. Paul's telling Timothy he has to do it. It's not a choice. It's not an option. It's a command. Pastors do not have an option of whether they can preach the word. Pastors are commanded to preach the word. And the verb is in the aorist tense, meaning it's a general truth to be applied at all times. Paul's not saying, hey, just this coming week, Timothy, make sure you preach the word. 
doesn't matter what you do after that, but really need you to preach the word this week. It's not in the future tense. You know, hey, on this date in the future, I'm going to really need you to preach the word. It's in the aorist tense. It's a general command. Always preach the word. And in part, it's because the preaching of the word equips the church for good works. It's not the only reason, but that's part of it. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's why you were created, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God created us for good works. James 2.26 that says, uh, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. Martin Luther said that we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. Because our good works are the fruit of our faith. Our good works do not make us right with God, but when we are right with God, we do good works. In Matthew 22, Jewish leaders asked Jesus what the greatest command in the law was, and listen to Jesus' answer. Matthew 22, 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What's that mean? The Bible, right? The Old Testament, the scripture. Jesus says the Ten Commandments, that's what he was summarizing in those two commands, right? Love God, love neighbor. The Ten Commandments can be summarized in these two commands. Love God and love people. The Bible is essential, the preaching of the Bible is essential because it equips us for these good works. It reveals God's love to us, which then motivates us to love God and to love neighbor. It reveals God's law to us, distinguishing between right and wrong. The only reason we know the difference between right and wrong is because God has told us in his word. The scripture gives us sexual boundaries so that we do not destroy our lives. Sex is like fire. In the fireplace of marriage between one man and one woman, it warms the house and it gives light to see clearly, but outside of the fireplace of marriage, it burns the house to the ground. The Bible warns us that our hearts are desperately wicked, so don't follow your heart. The Bible teaches us right submission, wives to husbands, children to parents, employees to employers, citizens to the government, church members to church elders, all people to God. The Bible shows us how God requires us to live. God has spoken, he has saved us, and he tells us how we now shall live. So my dissertation, right, I wrote this book on preaching, um, there's a guy, you may or may not have heard of him, his name's Carl Barth. He wrote more than one book. He, he wrote a lot. Carl uh, Barth's a big name in 20th century Christian, Christian intellectual thought. There's a lot of things that Carl Barth wrote and said that we would love. There's a lot of things that he wrote and said that we would hate. You know, he's, a, he's, a, he's a very mixed bag. But he wrote a lot on preaching. He wrote a lot on Jesus, the incarnate word. Barth was a professor in Switzerland and one of the most influential and prolific uh, theologians of the 20th century. His magnum opus, I've referred to it before here, I don't know if you remember, uh, it's called the Church Dogmatics. I have it in my office if anyone wants to see it. Thirteen giant theology books. You know, it, would, it, would, it would sit like this on this pulpit. Massive work, his life work. 
1962, Karl Barth was visiting the United States and he was lecturing in Princeton and he lectured at the University of Chicago. And according to church lore, uh, during his trip, Barth was asked by someone at one point to summarize the theological meaning of the millions of words in the church dogmatics. Millions of words. Could you summarize that the best you can? And Bart paused and he thought for a moment and he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's why the preaching of the word is essential. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would keep your promise that your word would, would not return void. In 2 Timothy 4.2, your Holy Spirit commands elders of local churches to preach the word. That has happened today, Father. It has happened in weakness. It has happened in spite of my sin. But Father, we would ask that you would bless your word as it has gone forth. We know that the only perfect elements of this sermon have been the scripture that have been quoted. But we ask now that you would take your word and that you would open the eyes of those who don't believe. And that you would teach and correct and reprove and rebuke and train in righteousness those who do believe. Father, we ask most ultimately that you would keep your promise. That your word would save and sanctify. And that you would do so for our glory or for our good for our good, never for our glory. You would do so for our good, but Father, most ultimately that you would do so for your glory. We ask our Father in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen. Church, rise now and come to the Lord's Supper. <laughs>